0: Is the um, AJC.com, the Atlanta Journal, has pulled together this um, page on their website that tracks baby names in Georgia. So the names I'm about to tell you are all names that were given to children in Georgia. There's probably 14 or 15 categories. This is one category. I'm just going to read through it. We have two kids named Adidas, one named Answer, five named Apple. I don't know if that's after the computer or Gwyneth Paltrow one named Arid, as in deodorant, four named Atari, one named Bacardi, one named Bonanza, two named Brita, one Butterfly, six cash, as in the amount of space on a hard drive, C-A-C-H-E. Um, we've got a couple of Cessnas, four Champions, 147 Chanel's, 105 Chiquitas, three Cliniques, a couple of Cobras, two Converse, a Corona, a Corvette, um nine Dannons, 29 Dasanis, nine Dells, 13 Deltas, a Discovery, 7 Disneys. Of course we're in Georgia. We have 187 Dixies, two Earth, one uh, five ERA, like the uh what is that, a Realty Company era? ERA, one Exxon, two Fabergés, twenty Fantas. That was surprising to me. Eight Favors, three Ferraris, two Fila's, three Geos, a Gerber, a Gillette, a Guinness, 20 Ikeas. I also thought that was interesting. 13 Infinities, two Jaguars, a Java, three L'Oreal's, a Lacoste, 170 Lexus, as in the car, three Life, five Lotus, a Marriott, four Maybellines, a Michelob, (laughs) two Neons, two Nestle's, one Nike, 50 Porsches, a Prada, an RC, Four REIs, one Senka. That's an old school there on the coffee. I don't know you can find that anymore. A Sega. That's another throwback. Three Sony's, a Sprite, a Suave, a Tankeray, a Teflon. Two Toyotas, ten Trons, an Uno, a Visa, a Varnay, and thirteen Wacovias. And that's just one. That's just the uh, trademark category. There are plenty of other categories. AJC.com, you can look up those on your own. All right, this is Mark 5, starting in verse 1. We've been working through Mark a little bit at a time. If any of you have named your children that, I was not meant to make fun I was not laughing, notice, it was all of these people who were laughing. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on a nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. So there's the easiest way to look at this is it's a before and after picture. You've got before Jesus and after Jesus. Before, it's a horror movie. So you're the disciples, you've just come out of this scene that we talked about last week where you think you're going to die on the boat. Jesus has calmed the storm. You get to this foreign country, it's Gentile country. For some reason you land in a graveyard. You get off, you're probably kissing the ground because you're so happy to be on solid ground, and you begin to walk. It's still night, and you're walking wherever Jesus is saying to walk, and then this guy comes running at you. The Bible says he comes running at Jesus. According to Luke, he hadn't worn clothes in a long time. So he's naked, he's dirty. Mark says he cut himself with stones. He's probably bleeding. He's obviously nuts. He's crazy. People thought, were so afraid of him, they tried to chain him up, hands and foot. Foot. They had sent him out of their because they didn't want to be around him. So that's what's running at you as you get off the boat. Naked, bleeding, screaming, dirty, crazy slash demon-possessed. So that's our initial look at this guy. Mark does a pretty good job of describing him. He wants us to get that. Then Jesus casts these demons out, and the next picture we have of this guy is sitting there, Luke says, sitting at Jesus' feet, which is a posture of discipleship, clothed in his right mind, and then Jesus Jesus sends him home to his family with a job to do. Tell everybody what the Lord has done in your life. And you can see there this before and after. It's a very stark contrast, and I think what Mark wants us to see is this is what Jesus does. This is a picture of his ministry. This really happened. Mark didn't make up a story to make a point. This really happened, you can look at all the details to see it was a firsthand account. But I think the bigger picture for us is Mark wants to say, this is what Jesus does. This is a picture of his mission and of his ministry. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. What does this say to us? For many of us, we get wrapped up in the idea of forgiveness. And it's people like, it's my fault. People like me who talk all the time that say, Jesus wants to forgive you of your sins. Jesus came to forgive you for sins, and we can get the impression that that's all he's about. Once we've been forgiven, well, that's it for us. Forgiveness is just the first step. It's not the destination. Jesus says in John 8 that everyone who is a slave to, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. We've said before, the picture for us is Jesus walking around and saying to us, come and follow me. If you're a slave to someone or something else, then you can't follow Jesus. He says farther down in John 8 that the one who the son sets free is free indeed. And so that that to me is the picture. If you're chained to your chair and Jesus comes around and says, follow me, and you say, I can't. I'm chained to my chair. And he unlocks the chains. He's unlocking the chains in order for you to get up out of your seat and follow him. That's forgiveness. It's the unlocking of those chains. It's setting us free so we're no longer slaves to sin. But for many of us, he unlocks the chains and we just sit there. We don't go after him. We don't follow after him. We've done the first step. Or another picture, if you can imagine those of you who are married and all that that means for you having that relationship with your spouse. If the first time you met them, you're talking to them and you're trying to get to know them and they can't, you're not communicating well. And you notice there's this white fuzz in their ears. You're not communicating and there's this fuzz and it's distracting you and you reach up and you pull the cotton balls out. Now you can talk. Now you can begin to develop a relationship. If she walks away at that point, that's, the point of it was not to pull the cotton balls out of her ears. It was to get the cotton balls out of her ears so you could begin to talk and develop this relationship. Forgiveness is just the first... It's hugely important, but it's preliminary. It's, it was never meant to be the end-all, be-all of why Jesus came. Actually, in 1 John 3.8, we read that the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. The reason Jesus came was to destroy the devil's works. And so maybe one of the questions is, well... What are the devil's works? And I think that's where Mark comes in. There's a, this guy is a picture of what the devil wants to do. In John 10.10, 10, you get um, a mission statement for Jesus and for the devil. The thief, the enemy, the devil comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. The son of man has come that you would have life and have it to the full. Again, you see that contrast. Each one of those is a mission statement. The, the devil, the enemy, his work, his job, his mission is to steal and kill and destroy. And that's all of us, regardless of where we are in our relationship with the Lord. He's literally hell-bent on eradicating within each of us the image of God. This is Psalm 8. I'll flip over there. You don't have to. Starting in verse 3. This is David talking. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? the son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the seas, all that swim the paths of the seas. That's a picture of what God desires for us. If you look at this guy that Jesus meets, he's, he's nowhere near that. God created us to rule and reign. We mentioned that last week. This guy can't even make a choice about where to live. According to Luke, it says he's driven into solitary places by these demons. That word driven is the same word that's used of a cloud that's being pushed by the wind or a boat that's being rowed with oars. The boat doesn't have any choice. It goes where the people with the oars paddle it. It's a picture. He has His will is 100% compromised. He can't make any decisions for himself. He's supposed to rule and to reign over some area of life. And he has no control over his will. God created us to be in relationship. We looked at that a few weeks ago. We're created for one another. This guy has been driven from community. The only contact he has with people is when they try to chain him up. They've driven him into a graveyard because they don't want him in the town. God put Adam and Eve in paradise and said, live here, you can eat from any of these trees except this one. This guy, he was naked, he didn't have a home, who knows what he ate. Whatever he could find, I guess. Again, this this contrast between what God desires for him and the way that he is living. God put Adam and Eve in the garden and said, you guys have a job, we just read that in Psalm 8. Here's what I want y'all to do. I want you to take care of this, I want you to steward this, manage this, lead this. This guy spends all day wailing and cutting himself with rocks. Again, everything that it means to be created in the image of God, the, the devil has distorted in this guy's life. He's wrecked. If you look at this guy, you don't see any fingerprints of God in his life. Again, he's naked, he's bleeding, he's dirty, he's crazy. The devil has totally distorted, even destroyed, actually what God intended and created for this guy to do. If you step back even farther and just kind of bottom line it, we were created, we were designed to be representatives of God on the earth. When somebody in the old days heard Genesis 1 and 2 for the first time, what what it would have made them think of was when a king conquered a new territory, he would put a statue of himself right there in that territory. So when he was gone somewhere else, everybody would remember, hey, this is his land. That's what Adam and Eve were. They were these representatives of God. They were to say to everything else in creation, this is God's, and we are here as his representatives. That's, how God, that's God's desire for every person he's ever made, that we would be representatives of his here on the earth. This guy doesn't even have a name. He's only known by the number of demons that are literally infesting his life. A legion is 6,000. Who knows if he had 6,000 demons? He had enough to make him miserable. That's for sure. Again, this contrast between what it means to be created in the image of God, to be a representative of God here on the earth, and to be living in a graveyard when nobody knows your name. You're known by the name of the demons that inhabit you. That's, again, I think what Mark is saying. Jesus is coming to deal with that situation. Again, you can see Jesus addresses each level of that. He was crazy. Now he's sitting at Jesus' feet, a posture of discipleship. He's fixed that problem. He was alone. He sends him back home. He didn't have anything to do with his life except scream and cut himself. Go tell everybody what the Lord has done. He was naked, and now he's clothed. This whole thing with the pigs, that upsets some people. Why did Jesus allow or send 2,000 pigs? The pigs didn't do anything wrong. The pigs didn't do anything wrong. The picture there for me is that Jesus cares a whole lot more about people than he does pigs. He wants to restore this guy to community. He wants to get this guy back into his town. Everybody knows him as the crazy guy, the demon guy, the guy who lives in the graveyard. If he comes strolling back into town, you think anybody's going to have anything to do with him? But if you're one of these guys who tends pigs, whatever you call those, pig herders or whatever they do, and you see your 2,000 pigs run down into the lake, and then you see this guy clothed, sitting at Jesus' feet in his right mind, you probably can clue in, hey, he's cured, he's healed, he's well now. It was a visual demonstration of the fact that Jesus took care of this guy, that he wasn't who they thought he was anymore, that he had been restored to how God intended him to be. Bad for the pigs, really good for the guy. It's a it's just it's a visual demonstration for the townspeople. He doesn't have to live in the graveyard anymore. He's not crazy anymore. He's not demon possessed anymore. All that was taken care of. Remember, we saw all the pigs run into the lake. These guy he's a new man in a lot of ways. So what about for us? There was an article in Live Science. It's a website in June of 2010, and this the conclusion. And don't get nutty with this, but the conclusion is that the names that we give our kids affect them on through their adult life, and he pulled out a few specific things. He said, for instance, if you name, this is going to, I can't remember everybody's name. If this step's on toes, I'm sorry. I didn't say it. I'm just reading what's in there. So if you name a boy kind of a feminine name, Ashley or Shannon like that, they're usually pretty good in elementary school. And then in sixth grade, the number their their uh, discipline problems in school shoot through the roof. Particularly if there's a girl in their class with the same name as them. Same thing is true for girls. There's certain names that sound masculine, like Taylor. If a, if a woman has a name like Taylor and she pursues an advanced degree, it's more likely that she will pursue it in math or science, which are traditionally masculine fields. Then if she has a name like Isabel, which is 100% feminine, who uh, will pursue an advanced degree in humanities. Not every time, but again, he's just he's stepped back, he's looked at a lot of research, and he's kind of pulling this stuff out. Correlation and causation aren't the same thing, but he's just looking at this stuff. Guys who have names that that tend to be feminine have problems in middle school, and you can think of the reasons for that. Girls who have names that tend to be masculine pursue what we would call masculine fields once they hit their advanced degree. He also did this. This was really interesting. He looked at millions of birth certificates, and he pulled out what he considered quote-unquote low-status names. These were names given to babies who were born in, low, in families with a low socioeconomic status. And he, then he broke those names down into thousands of, I think they're called phonemes, the different sound portions of a name. And he came up with a profile for what a low-status name sounds like. And then he went and he looked at school records and found that kids who had low status sounding names, whether or not they came from a low status family did not matter. If their name was low status sounding, they were more likely to, uh, they were going to do worse in school, they were less likely to get recommended for the gifted program, and they were more likely to be called learning disabled, regardless of what their home situation actually was, just based on the way their name sounded. There's this thing that some psychologists, I think it was in the 60s, a guy named Rosenthal in, at Harvard uh, discovered. It's called the Pygmalion Effect. and says that people uh, rise to the occasion or sink to the occasion, whatever it is based on expectations. He had these Harvard kids who are obviously really smart, and he brought them into class one day, and he said, I've got this group of rats that have been genetically modified for intelligence. These are super smart rats. And then I've got regular dumb rats over here. And he split the class in half. And he gave y'all the super smart rats, and he gave y'all the dumb rats. And he said, I want y'all to train them to run through this maze. And at the end of the semester, we're going to see whose rats do the best. And as you can imagine, the super smart rats smoked the regular dumb rats. And at the end of the class, the punchline was, all the rats are the same. None of them have been genetically modified. The only difference was the way y'all treated. Y'all expected your rats to be super smart. And so subconsciously or whatever, y'all were, y'all were expecting them to run fast and to be smart, and they performed, and y'all were expecting your rats to be dumb rats, and that's what they did. And they've shown this with, in, in academics and in athletics, just about every field, people, again, whatever the expectations are, people tend to live up or down to the expectations that are set on them. The labels that we carry actually matter. We live up to or down to our labels. For this guy, his label was demon-possessed. Everything about him. Jesus comes and changes all of that. He gives him a new name, Revelation 2.17. Jesus gives us a new name. We never know what this guy's name is, but the people in town knew. And when Jesus sent him back, it was so he could grab that name that he'd been given when he was born. He didn't have to be legion anymore. And the same thing is true for us. I don't know if I were to ask you what your name tag is, what you'd say. Not the one that we all see, the one that you see. I don't know what your label is. We all have them, and they matter. In the Bible, if you look, naming is hugely important. Sometimes names go with um, circumstances of birth. Esau was hairy. And Esau means hairy. All right, we get that. Jacob comes out grabbing Esau's heel. Jacob means grasping the heel. When Abram becomes, when he gets this promise from God, you're going to be the father of many nations. God changes his name from Abram to Abraham, father of many nations. When Isaac is born, Isaac means laughter. The Bible says Sarah laughed. And she says everyone who hears about this, me, old and worn out having a baby, they're going to laugh. Jesus means God saves names are significant peter means rock and jesus says this confession you've made i'm going to build my church on this you get that and for us maybe not your first your first name might not matter at all your your given name but the labels that we wear they matter you know there's some circles you're the funny guy and that's what you do you crack jokes and you're sarcastic and that's in that in that sphere that's who you are and so you put on that hat For others of you, you're the responsible girl. And so you're the one that keeps up with everybody's keys and their cell phones and the dates. Some of you are initiators, you know. There's certain people, they're never going to call you. If anything's going to happen, it's going to be because you call them. You're the planner and the organizer. And we just, we live up to those expectations. For some of you, your parents think you're slacker. And so you're fine with that. Sure, you can wash my clothes. Sure, you can change my, I'll absolutely take $100 if you want to give it to me. Whatever it is, we just we we just fit in. Whatever the label is, that's how it, it's it's too much work for us to change it. A lot of times, however, you're going to choose to see me, then that's what I'm, I'm going to conform to your expectations. And you do the same thing. If you could step out of your life and look, particularly, look at how you are at work, how you are at home, how you are with your old high school friends, your college friends, your church friends. Think about. Are you different in each of those circles? And what's different? You're the same guy. You're the same girl. It's most likely the expectations that they have on you, the role that you're playing in that crowd. Which sometimes can be great because people expect you to to be up and so you rise to the occasion and sometimes it's not good because they're still treating you like you were when you were 17 and you're not that guy anymore in a lot of ways. But you... You just kind of fall into those old patterns. As a staff this week, we just took some time and we prayed, and I said, let's just ask the Lord, what are some labels that as a some of us are wearing? And I've got a list here. I just want you to close your eyes. I'm going to go through this list. If any of these hit you, I just want you to grab onto it. We're going to take communion. We're going to have an opportunity for prayer. Some of the ones that some of the staff felt like applied, workaholic. If you feel like if that's your label, it could be that you wouldn't say that. You're just you're the hardest working guy in the office. So you're not going to leave anything undone. You're going to answer the email. You're going to miss dinner. Your wife's a widow. Your kids are orphans. Because you got to get it done. Eighty hours, whatever it is. Perfectionist. The house, the kids' clothes, your face, all of it It has to be perfect. You can't go out, you can't let people see. Failure. Second class. You're a Christian, you're just in the back of the bus. You're in charge, you're responsible. Everybody's leaning on you. You can't unplug. You absolutely can't make a mistake because it's all resting on you. You're the one who's in control. Ashamed. Afraid. Loser. Abandoned. And this one was interesting. Um, this Penny, our children's pastor, said as she was praying the impression she got was that some people, their name tag is blank. There's nothing on it at all. You don't have any idea who you are. You especially don't know who you are in the Lord. Now just keep your eyes closed. I'm going to pray. One of the things about this story I think is interesting. In Mark 4.35, which is what we looked at last week, It says that day after he'd finished teaching the parables, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Jesus made a point to go to the other side of the lake, and there's no reason for him to be there. It was Gentile country, strike one. It was a graveyard, which is unclean, strike two. And there were 2,000 pigs, which were unclean, strike three. There was no reason at all for these guys to be there in the middle of the night. And yet Jesus goes. He said, Jesus says, let's go. I don't know if this guy was infamous and everybody had heard of him. I think Jesus is going on a mission. It's interesting to me that the guy's neck at Luke says he hasn't worn clothes in a long time. And then all of a sudden he's dressed. I don't know where he got the clothes. I wonder if Jesus brought them. If when he left, he knew who he was going to meet and what he was going to do. I think you this morning need to hear he's the same. He's the, law, he's the shepherd who goes looking for the lost sheep, just like he came after this guy in a graveyard in the middle of the night in a Gentile area with 2,000 pigs, places a rabbi, a Jew, should never be. He'll come and look for you this morning. He knew that you would be here, and he knows what you have written on your name tag. And the good news, again, is Revelation 2.17. Jesus gives us a new name. 2 Corinthians, we read that Jesus makes us new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. Think about this guy. Everything that we know about him from the first half of this story, every bit of that is changed. Jesus destroyed the works of the devil in his life. The devil came to, d- to distort, to mar, to eradicate the image of God in this guy's life. Jesus reversed every bit of that physically spiritually, relationally emotionally, every way. He wants to do the same thing for you. If you're a workaholic, you need to hear God's name, one of his names, is I will provide. You don't have to do that. If you're a perfectionist, the five best words in the Bible for you Mark 14 a woman comes and anoints Jesus with oil and everybody gives her a hard time and Jesus says she did what she could you need to grab onto that. He commended her for doing what she could do. And it's the same thing for us. That's all he wants. Do what you can. It doesn't have to be perfect. She did what she could. You're a failure. A loser. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. The Bible describes him as one who doesn't put out a smoldering wick. Doesn't break A bruised reed. If that's you and you're weak and you're fragile, hear that. You're second class. You get it. You're forgiven. God loves you. He just can't do anything with you because you're damaged goods. He says this about you chosen people, holy nation, royal priesthood, people belonging to God. That's you. You're in charge. And you carry that weight. Jesus holds all things together. The job's already taken. You don't have to. You're ashamed. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're afraid. Perfect love casts out fear. You're abandoned. Jesus says, never will I leave you or forsake you. You don't know what you are. There's nothing on your name tag. God says you're a son of his, whether you're a man or a woman, you're a son of the king. You're a co-heir with Jesus. That's who you are. And that's more true of you than anything else. God, my prayer for me, for every person in this room, is that we would get that in the core of who we are. Whatever name tag we see when we look in the mirror, God, if it's not the one that you've written, my prayer is that right now we would rip it off. And that we would allow Jesus to give us a new name. just keep your heads down for one more second we're going to take communion Communion's a lot of things for us this morning it's a tangible reminder of the fact that Jesus died for us which was a demonstration of God's love for us so if you feel if any of those labels I called if you're like that's me or maybe you have another one I didn't think of the first thing you have to get we said this last week is that he loves you. And as you break off a piece of bread and dip it in a cup of juice, I want, as you're chewing on that bread, what I want you to realize is this is a tangible reminder, a tangible demonstration of the fact that the God of heaven loves me. God demonstrated his love for you and for me in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Up in the corners, we're going to have people um, for prayer. The first Sunday of the month, we kind of devote to healing. We'd love to pray for you for any physical needs you have, but especially for me, it's this identity piece. If you're broken on the inside, I want to ask the Lord to heal you, to give you a new name today. If you'd be like this guy in the story, all you have to do is come to him. He's coming to us this morning. If we'll be willing to return the favor, take one step. He's already crossed the lake. He's just looking for some for us to take one step towards him. And he'll meet us. Amen. Alright, this is what we're going to do. If you're helping with communion, if you go ahead and come forward. We're going to have two